Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Heritage Voices, episode 81. I'm Jessica Uquinto, and I'm your host. And today we are talking about working with indigenous communities and orangutan conservation in Borneo. Before we begin, I'd like to honor and acknowledge that the lands I'm recording on today are part of the Nuch, or Ute People's Treaty Lands, the Dineta, and the Ancestral Puebloan Homeland. Today we have Dr. Chua on the show. Dr. Liana Chua is a social anthropologist and Tunku Abdul Rahman University Assistant Professor in Malay World Studies at the University of Cambridge. She has long-term research interests in Malaysian Borneo, where she has explored conversion to Christianity, ethnic politics, and experiences of development and resettlement among Badeu communities. She currently works on the social, political, and aesthetic dimensions of the global nexus of orangutan conservation, tracing its operations, transformations, and effects across national and cultural boundaries. So welcome to the show, Liana. Thank you, Jessica. Nice to be here. Yes, I'm so excited to have you on. We never get to talk about apes. So <laughs> like <Hey>. you said, <laughs> that's exciting. <laughs> Only a kind of ape though, just one kind. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. But yeah, so I wanted to ask you first, how did how did you get into social anthropology and, and what interested you in this type of work? Yeah, oh, I, I kind of got into it by accident. So I, I was I grew up in Singapore where nobody had ever heard of social anthropology. And and so for my first degree, I I studied history. And it was actually through this undergraduate degree in history that I first became exposed to anthropology and also kind of realized that what really, really, you know, grabbed my attention and really interested me were those those small human stories about, you know, what people ate, what people lived like, the differences, but also the similarities between humans. And particularly the way that these manifested themselves in, you know, very sort of stark cross-cultural um, or international encounters, like, you know, moments of trade or religious conversion. So it was kind of, I think, during my undergraduate in history that I started to develop a bit of a, an anthropological sensibility. I then went off and worked very briefly in a museum and thought I was going to go into a kind of museum career. But then I discovered this MPhil in Cambridge University called something like Social Anthropology and Museum Work. And I thought, oh, this sounds interesting, kind of combines both my interests. So I rocked up in Cambridge, you know, did this 12-month degree and within about two months suddenly, you know, had this moment of realization that this was really, really what I wanted to do. So I then applied for a PhD and I was very lucky. I got a studentship and then ended up doing a PhD in Malaysian Borneo with an indigenous group called the Bideyu. Yeah. Okay. So I want to, I want to back up a little bit to, to kind of what you were saying at the very beginning, because Singapore is, is really its own really interesting, you know, (laughs) anthropological, I don't know what you would call it exactly. But so looking back, you know, because you're talking about all these people coming together and how that shapes people and things like that. Did did it change the way that you think about Singapore after having this experience in in social anthropology? Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. And in fact, I, I think the seeds were already planted when I was growing up in Singapore, because I think I became very conscious of the fact, you know, when I was a teenager, that Singapore was this, as you say, a very, very strange, it's a strange bubble. It's a strange kind of microcosm, right? It's this weird little first world, uber modern, uber developed, and very self-consciously so, you know, country right in the middle of a much larger region in maritime Southeast Asia. Very unusually, it's got a a Chinese majority population. It's got a very specific history of of immigration and integration. So, you know, I, I think growing up, I was very aware that 
we were kind of unusual in the region. But I was also very aware that there was this very strong narrative in Singapore that we always heard day in, day out in school about, I guess you could call it Singaporean exceptionalism, right? We, we, mm. we, we were different. We were, we were special. We were somehow better than the rest of the countries around us because we we're more modern, more progressive, you know, whatever. I sort of absorbed that a lot when I was at school, but it, I also found it slightly disturbing. And I couldn't quite put my finger on why I found that, you know, uncomfortable. And so I, th- I think that was partly why I became interested in, in kind of going back to my own region, you know, back to Southeast Asia to do my PhD fieldwork, because I think I saw this as an opportunity for me to, to sate that curiosity and to, and to actually have a chance to, to look more carefully at some of these places that, you know, we just kind of dismissed as, as these slightly backward neighbors that we, we were somehow better than, and to actually try to look behind those sorts of stereotypes uh, and these strange images that I'd grown up with in Singapore uh, and to try and understand what exactly was going on behind those stereotypes. So I guess in a way, doing this PhD in anthropology was also partly an attempt to to kind of look look back at my Singapore upbringing in a slightly different way and, and maybe try to disrupt some of the assumptions that I'd grown up with, you know, that very much informed the, the sort of education system and the way Singaporeans thought and in some ways still think about themselves. Hmm, interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So that, that led you to look at, at wanting to work in the region, but what specifically drew you to Malaysian Borneo mm-hmm. and what specifically drew you to this community that you were working with? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so I think when I, when I decided that I was going to try and, you know, go back to Southeast Asia try and understand a little bit more about my own backyard, I then went and did a load of reading in the libraries. And while I was doing this reading, I came across this really interesting article by um, an anthropologist called Robert Winsler. I think he was based in Nevada, I think. And he wrote this really interesting piece about how these rural Bidayu communities, but also Bidayu communities in town, were starting to recast their old ritual architecture and particularly a building that's sometimes been called the head house. So it's a kind of ritual house that has historically been used for rituals, but also been used to store the heads of, of enemies that they've taken previously as, as, these, as, as these new sort of cultural artifacts, right? So he was kind of looking at this transformation of a ritual building with various ritual users into a cultural space. So, so, so I read this article and I was absolutely intrigued because what I'd been finding in my readings was that a lot of the existing anthropological research on Borneo on Southeast Asia, so this was kind of in the early 2000s, yeah, it was, was, very, it was very sort of, it was very culturally centered. It was about trying to understand, you know, traditional cultures, traditional ways of life, you know, old rituals, old religions, but not very good at dealing with transformations and changes, um, which I was fairly sure was happening in this region. So actually reading an article that looked explicitly at that process of change and the way you were kind of rethinking identities and you know ritual and so on got me really interested in trying to understand various kinds of transitions and how people in places like Borneo were living through those transitions and, and the way that they were exercising their own agency in these moments. So I decided that I would try to find out a little bit more about Bidayu society. And so at this point, this was a bit of a leap in, into the dark, right? So I, I got in touch with various people um, in Singapore who were in touch with various people in Malaysian Borneo. Uh, these were all through regional Catholic networks, which was very interesting, who then put me in touch with a very well-respected and well-known Bidayu Catholic leader. And so he hosted me for a few weeks. Uh, he took me he took me driving around various Bidayu regions uh, in his car. And we, we basically visited a whole bunch of villages, including a number of places that Winsler had written about in his article. And I was trying to basically, you know, find a village that was undergoing those sorts of very self-conscious cultural transformations that Winsler was writing about. And so we eventually came to a place called Kampung Bunuk. Kampung means village, and Bunuk was the name of the village. And here we found that there was a little a little mini museum, as it called itself, that had been set up by the quite elderly son of the village's last ritual chief. So just to give you a little bit of context, most Bidayus were followers of an, of an animist ritual complex known as Gawai, um, up to about the 1960s, 1980s. And then from about the 1980s, this process of very rapid and large-scale Christianization began. So this guy who owned the mini museum had converted to Catholicism a while back, but he still kept his family heirlooms like, you know, jars and gongs and um, ritual items 
as a repository of Bidayu culture. So he was kind of transforming these old ritual items into forms of culture, you know, in the way that Winsler had described. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't realize at the time was that this was also, you know, also a means of trying to reassert his his family's authority and saying, you know, yeah, you know, we used to be really, really potent and really influential and powerful in the village. And we kind of still are. And here's the proof. Here are our heirlooms and, you know, all our old ritual collections. I didn't know that at the time, but that was also the kind of one of the motivations, I think, for him setting up that mini museum. So we had a little chat. Um, I was just learning Malay, which is the lingua franca at the time. And he basically said, yeah, you know, if you want to come back and um, learn about Bidayu culture from me, uh, if you want to come and work with me on the mini museums collection, you'd be very welcome to, you know, come and live in the village. We'll adopt you as, as our granddaughter and, and you know, just, just feel free. So, um, so I did. So I kind of hung on to those Catholic connections and several months later uh, was introduced to another well-respected Catholic lady, uh, Catholic leader who was from the same village, was from Kampung Bunuk, and and she ended up becoming my adoptive mother. And I ended up living with her and her family for a total of 15 months during my PhD and spent a lot of time working at the mini museum. So it was, I didn't know it at the time, but this combination of Christianity, which was very, very um, influential and, and central to people's lives, and this interest in old ritual objects ended up becoming the focal point of uh, my PhD research and eventually the book that I wrote about it. Yeah, so that's that's kind of interesting too, because in a way you're almost tying back to that original interest in social anthropology and museums. There's kind of a, mm-hmm. an interesting tie back there. So, so could you talk a little bit about maybe what these collections meant to the community and and basically what you found during your time there, what you learned? Yeah. So my experience with the mini museum was revelatory in all sorts of ways, but not necessarily in the ways that I expected. So one of the first things that happened after I arrived, so I spent about, you know, a month and a half, I think, working with this elderly guy and his wife who taught me a lot about these ritual objects in the museum. And then he suddenly died which was really, oh. really unfortunate. He'd been ill for a while and then he said, you know, one day he just he just passed really quickly and, and everybody was, wow. a bit, was a bit shocked and taken aback and his wife was, you know, in, in total shock and really upset. And so that threw open all sorts of questions about, you know, what would happen to the mini museum? You know, what was going to happen to, you know, this, this old ritual knowledge that I'd been partially documenting and, you know, I wasn't quite there yet. And so... That kind of sent my research in all sorts of new directions. Um, and, and I remember distinctly this moment when I wandered down, you know, into, into the mini museum during his wake. So, you know, with Catholic wakes, you have about seven, seven nights of, of prayers um, in the deceased household. And, and what you get is you get the whole village, ideally, you know, coming to the deceased household, bringing gifts, bringing food, bringing money to try and give the bereaved family a little bit of support, you know, so that um, they don't they don't feel ill, they don't feel sad, they don't feel lonely. Um, so it's, it's, it's an incredible moment when you really kind of get this, this, this idea of, you know, communitas <laughs> in action. Uh, and so I remember wandering down to the mini museum and it had been turned into a sort of gambling den because people often kind of, you know, do a bit of gambling, you know, play some cards, they drink beer, they were kind of eating peanuts and chucking the shells on the floor, very, very normal stuff for, for a wake. And I had a chat with a, a group of, you know, kind of middle-aged men who were sitting there and they were asking me about the research, the research that I was doing. And I said, yeah, I'm here to study you culture. I want to understand all about your culture. And one of the guys turned to me and he said, oh yeah, well, you know, you know, all this stuff is our culture. So he kind of gestured around the room, uh, you know, towards all the objects that were on display, all the stuff that this guy had put together in the museum. This stuff is our culture. It's, it's the old ways, but you know, if you come back here in about, you know, 10, 15, 20 years time, it's not going to be here anymore. You're just going to find us sitting here eating eating peanuts and drinking beer. And that that's basically it. And, and I think at that point, I suddenly realized that actually people were not as interested in culture, in this concept of culture as I, as I thought they had been. I suddenly realized that, that the sorts of processes of transformation of, of, you know, ritual things into culture that Winsler had been describing and that this guy had been doing through the mini museum 
was not being shared across the village. People were not that interested in in creating a sense of Bidayu culture in the same way. Um, This was very much the project of one particular guy. So although I learned a lot from him, you know, I suddenly realized that I I didn't fully, he was a very, he was a very specific section of that village. And to really, really understand what was going on in the village, I had to start looking elsewhere. I had to try and understand, you know, what was actually going on in people's everyday lives, which is, you know, it's, that's one of the great things about anthropology, right? You've, you've got that sort of inductive impulse. You realize that the questions that you started out with were not the same. And then you find other questions that really matter to people. And so I, I had a bit of a panic at that point. I was like, oh my God, I'm, you know, what do I do? I'm, they're not interested in culture. What am I going to talk about? And at that point, I then realized, you know, I was sitting there, it was awake, they were saying the rosary and lots of prayers upstairs. And I suddenly realized that actually what seemed to matter in these situations was Christianity. It was sort of Christianity that was structuring people's lives, Christianity that absolutely infused the way they understood what was going on around them. And as I later discovered, uh, Christianity that was shaping the way they related to to the old ritual objects and the old ritual practitioners and and the spirits and what they were doing. Um, So again, you know, it was... I sort of ended up doing this strange loop where I started with culture and museums, veered away from it because I realized that people weren't talking about culture in the same way, but then sort of came back to this question and via a rather circuitous route through the study of Christianity. And, and what I was realizing was that the experience of converting to Christianity was what was encouraging people to differentiate between the old ways, you know, ritual Um, as performed properly by the old practitioners, the spirits that were associated with these rituals, and culture, as it could be manifested in objects, in certain um, items of dress, in certain songs, certain dances that could be safely incorporated into their everyday Christian life. So culture is something that was based on the old ways, but that was somehow compatible with Bidayu Christianity. And and I don't think I would have quite set off on that path if I hadn't had that moment <laughs> sitting in the mini museum with those guys who just said, nah, we're not that interested in culture, really. So, yeah, that's what happened in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting, interesting journey, like going back and forth in the different directions. I feel like that's how it always goes with with anthropology. Mm. But we are already at our, our first break point, which is crazy. Yeah. But we will be back here in a minute. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Okay, so we're back. We were just finishing talking about your PhD experience. And can you can you talk a little bit more like after you finished your your PhD? How did you decide where to go from there? And, and where where did you go? from? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so after my PhD, I thought, you know, I should try and make full use of the the linguistic, the cultural skills I picked up because, you know, it'd be a bit of a shame otherwise. And and I, I thought I'd really like to carry on, you know, doing research with, uh, with Bidayus. And so as I was, as I was writing up my PhD, uh, I was back in Sarawak catching up on stuff when I heard about this dam project that was being planned about half an hour's drive away from where I'd been doing my field work. 
So this was a, a neighboring, quite closely related Bidayi region where a, a very large tributary of the Sarawak River had been earmarked by the government to to create a new dam that would help to secure the capital city's water supply. So it wasn't a hydroelectric dam, it was just a you know a straightforward kind of reservoir that would benefit the capital city. And 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 so there were four quite small and quite um, remote, well, relatively remote Bidayu villages that were located in the mountain range that this tributary ran through. They were between about three to five hours walk from the nearest road up these quite steep hills and across across lots of small rivers and things and big rivers, in fact. And so I became really interested in, in, in this situation. And I thought, you know, since since I'd looked at religious change and ethnic politics in my PhD fieldwork, it might be quite interesting to look at a different kind of change, which was all about environmental transformations and the way that people were experiencing what could be really quite a radical rupture from a sort of Sweden agriculture-based life up in the hills to a, a much more kind of urban and quite likely wage-earning life in an official resettlement site along the road that was not in their customary land. So a, couple, a year after I finished uh, doing my PhD field work, I got a research permission and funding to come back and start a new research project with these four villages that were affected by the dam. And what I was basically trying to do was understand their their perceptions, their experiences of resettlement, but also by extension, really quite drastic environmental change. Um, so this was only meant to be a kind of two or three year project because the, the inundation was actually due to start, we thought, in about 2010, 2011. As it happened, this turned into a much, much longer research commitment that I'm still very invested in in all sorts of ways, albeit mostly from a distance these days, because it took a lot longer than that for the whole thing to play out. There were various complications along the way. There were a lot of disagreements among the affected communities. And one of the most interesting things I found was that um, a pretty significant majority of the affected villages were actually keen to move to the resettlement site. And there were lots of different reasons for this. Um, you know, some people felt that they really wanted to give up the backbreaking work of rice planting and, and quite a difficult to reach area, you know, where they didn't necessarily have easy access to hospitals, to schools, to shops and their relatives in town and stuff, and to become modern and to, you know, kind of start earning wages instead of being rice farmers. Some people just weren't that keen on moving, but then they felt they had to move because the, the little village schools and village health facilities were being closed down and moved to the resettlement site. So they had to move with these um, facilities to make sure that their children had a good future. And some people just kind of, you know, fancied a bit of a change. So quite a lot of people were actually keen to go, even if they weren't necessarily happy about leaving their customary lands behind. And then a, a small but fairly significant mi minority were very against moving out of their ancestral lands. And so as my research progressed, I initially started out working with a broad cross-section of the four affected villages and trying to understand you know, different perceptions of resettlement, why different people wanted to do different things. But as time moved on, I, I sort of gradually became more interested in a small group of people who were quite actively resisting resettlement and who, who undertook this very painful and very long-running legal case that went on for about six years to to obtain official recognition of their customary land rights in their areas directly above the inundation zone, so right above the new reservoir, rather than be forced to move down to the resettlement site. And so I ended up, you know, as, as my research progressed, focusing a little bit more on their experiences of going through this Indigenous rights case the way they they worked with lots of different parties, including lawyers, you know, um, politicians, uh, indigenous movements, the media, all sorts of well-meaning journalists who are coming from different parts of Malaysia and the world, um, to try and sort of build up this project to stay where they were um, for for various reasons, and so that sort of became the you know I, I didn't quite mean it to end up that way, but. Once I started getting pulled in that direction, it became harder and harder to maintain my connections with the other people who are all kind of dispersing and moving back, moving out to the resettlement site or to, you know, urban areas with their compensation money. And so it was an interesting case, again, of kind of following, following a lead. But in this case, it ended up really narrowing uh, my research focus 
onto this one particular case and the experiences of these, these people who resisted resettlement. Uh, and in the end, after about six years and against all expectations, these guys won. They ended up building a brand new village from scratch in their ancestral lands right above the dam itself. Um, and they're still there today. Uh, and now I've, I've sort of slightly shifted my research focus to try and understand what exactly it is they're doing to survive uh, in this new village that, you know, had previously been just inconceivable, that that the state and they and other Bidayus simply had no conceptual room to imagine. But it is there. So the question is, you know, what do we do when we're actually in this place? How do we make a new village a new village and keep it? keep it going somehow. So yeah, that that's uh, that's where I am now. But it, it's, it's been a really long-term research thing that's stretched out for over 15 years now. Yeah. I mean, first of all, that's that's very impressive, amazing, very exciting for this this group of people that they were able to make that happen. You know, you hear so many stories where mm-hmm. that doesn't happen. So that's, mm-hmm. that's really awesome. And I'm curious, you know, going through that experience, you know, with this group of people, uh, I'm sure that there were a lot of learning moments. So can you, yeah. can you talk about uh, what some of those were for you? Yeah. Yeah. No, there were, there were loads of learning moments. And I think, I think possibly the biggest learning moment was, was when I realized, you know, after having started doing research in, in these four villages that I think all my kind of slightly romantic, you know, um, I wanted to change the world preconceptions had to be held in check for a bit because, you know, normally if you, if you're sort of coming in from the outside and you look at a situation like that, generally your, or at least my instinct is to think, oh my goodness, you know, small squashed indigenous group bravely fighting against big bad government that's trying to resettle them. And, and I think I realized very quickly that actually this, it was much more nuanced and complicated on the ground than I could have expected, um, you know, just coming in from the outside, realizing that actually so many people, for whatever reason, wanted to move to the resettlement site and, you know, genuinely believed in this project of modernity and kind of, you know, becoming modern and, and people and, and becoming urban, really sort of disrupted any preconceptions I might have had about what Indigenous people might actually want. And I think at that point, I suddenly realized that there was a risk that I'd been sort of slotting them into a slightly naive, you know, black and white moral dichotomy. And so that kind of pushed me to start taking a lot more seriously the, the different ways in which people were articulating their desire to move, um, you know, the different aspirations and hopes and concerns and fears that they had. You know, it wasn't as if all of them were brainwashed or something or that they were all kind of selling out. There were lots and lots of different reasons that people felt that a move to the to the resettlement site was a good idea. And I had to take those seriously. So, you know, I've, I've been very, very cautious in writing about this situation of making it sound like this was just a straightforward case of an indigenous group, you know, being squashed by by a government. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's important not to downplay the power dynamics that were involved and the fact that no matter what happened, these communities were still very much on the back foot. But at the same time, you know, there were various sort of glimmers of, of agency and hope and aspiration that we, we really can't dismiss. We, we have to really try to understand and grapple with as anthropologists, even if it feels uncomfortable to us. Um, so that was one thing, kind of, you know, learning to take seriously the people who genuinely run, wanted to be resettled, the guys who did want to move eventually. But I think the second thing, and this, this is sort of related, was trying to figure out how to deal with the anti-resettlement group. Because, you know, I think in many ways, the anti-resettlement group saw me as a potential resource. You know, I, here I was, an anthropologist, you know, with good connections, big schooling, as they say, um, who could help them with their, with their resistance to the resettlement scheme. Now, I was in a slightly awkward situation because I was there on a research permit, uh, which very, very clearly said, you know, you are not to get involved in any of this stuff. They, they were aware that this was a very, very contentious scheme. And they, you know, very clearly said, you know, if you get involved in any sort of activism or anti-resettlement activity, you're out, right? Mm. Um, and I think, you know, actually, that's one of the constraints that as anthropologists, we don't, we very often don't talk about. We have to deal with these bureaucracies and these these threats and, and risks um, to right. both ourselves and our interlocutors. And we need to take those seriously as well. 
But of course, the other point was that I was also very aware that it was difficult to paint a simplistic, you know, black or white moral picture of the situation because I knew there were so many people in the situation who actually did want to move. So there really wasn't a clear sort of, you know, right or wrong in this case. Um, and so I think knowing that made me sort of pause and try and figure out how best I could work with with this with this anti-resettlement group. And so I made it very clear to them that I was limited in how much I could support them and that, you know, I, I, w- I would basically be there to, to, to try to help them document and talk through um, their experiences. You know, I try to capture the stories, the lived experiences that they were going through, but I could not in any way advocate for them in any sort of explicit way because that really wasn't within my remit or my capabilities. And, and I think they understood that. So I stepped back. Um, I spent a lot of time listening and learning and recording. You know, I captured oral histories, stories about villages, about ancestors, particular families, individuals, relations with the, with the environment, uh, ritual, religious beliefs, including um, with Christianity. And I wasn't quite sure what I'd do with a lot of this material in the end, but I felt that it was important to, to be listening and, and documenting this stuff. And then eventually, as it happened, um, at one point when the Indigenous rights case was being prepared, one of the people who was helping with this case, who was in fact also an anthropologist from the local university who was working with the lawyers, got in touch and said, look, you know, can we, you've got all this documentation, all these oral histories, you know, all these stories about the landscape. We need to collate material and evidence for this case. Are you willing to share that with us? And, you know, for me, that was that was one way that I felt that I could actually help and, and stand with my interlocutors without necessarily being overtly involved in, in resisting the scheme. And so I, you know, I, I sort of handed over a lot of the material that I collated and that was then combined along with other material, including archive sources, you know, other oral histories into this much bigger portfolio of evidence that was then used to make a case for their native customary land rights in the area. So it, it sort of, I played a very, very small part in that. And I think what that made me realize was, you know, sometimes it, it's not about shouting as loud as you can or, you know, kind of getting directly involved in, in politics or activism. Sometimes it is about just stepping back and and kind of just shutting up and listening and documenting and, and collecting stories. And sometimes that will then give you a chance to make a difference in in a small way, but in a way that can actually be beneficial to your interlocutors. So um, that that's that's a really important learning moment that I've hung on to. I think. Yeah. So obviously, it's it's been some time. It sounds like since this legal battle happened, and you mentioned mm. this interest in you know how do you create a a new village. So how are, how are things going for this community? What's what has been happening to them since then? Yeah, that's that's very much an open question. Uh, so the new village was created in the mid 2010s, so kind of 20, 2013, 2014. Inundation happened in 2015. And so at that point, the old villages in the mountain range uh, were inundated. They're, they're underwater now, mostly. And, and, you know, my friends can still sort of stand... Uh, on the hills uh, above their old village and kind of look down on the waters and you can see exactly where things were. It just looks, it's a very, very sort of strange, eerie, you know, drowned landscape. We've got these dead tops of trees and, and tall clumps of bamboo sticking out of the water. Mm. So they've, they've been very adaptable. So one of the difficulties is that although they got the legal recognition uh, to their native customary land rights in the area, the government has still not recognized their new village. So, you know, the government's recognized their land rights, but it has not uh, agreed to register this village as a village. And so it hasn't given them the same sorts of amenities and support like, you know, um, medical care and, you know, funding for gravity feed, water systems, solar panels, that sort of thing that they'd normally give to rural villages. And this means that my friends are having to be very, very resourceful and, and creative about finding ways of surviving in this new place. So at the moment, I've been, you know, I'm sort of looking at the different strategies they've come up with to try and, you know, make things livable in this new village. And these include things like they've been trying to set up their own ecotourism scheme where they pick up visitors at the dam entrance and they zip across the water in this new boat 
for half an hour and they get there and, you know, there's beautiful views and an ecotourist lodge and everything. They've been setting up new agricultural, small scale agricultural schemes where they can sell, you know, sort of uh, nice organic village produce to supermarkets, to buyers in town. So there's lots of different ways that they've been trying to make things work. And they've been trying to create these new alliances as well with NGOs and with donors and churches who will then give them, you know, the material and financial support to to, to do things like create a mini hydro uh, system for their electricity and to build a new village chapel and so on. So it's been really interesting kind of watching these these different strategic, you know, and, and often very speculative efforts coming together in this one space. But it is tough. You know, they're, they're still very much in a marginalized and, and quite sort of, I guess, difficult position uh, without official governmental support. So there's still a very big question mark here as to what what's actually going to happen to this village and how sustainable it's going to be in the long term. So, yeah, that's what I'm looking at now. And on that note, we are at our second break point. So when we come back, we'll talk about your work with Indigenous communities and orangutans. So everybody stay tuned for that. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks. You're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Okay, so we are back from our break. So yeah, let's let's dive in. How did you get from, from that work that you were doing to your current work working with these or I don't know if it's even these same communities, but indigenous communities and orangutans. So with the resettlement project, I began thinking a lot about how people experience very radical and very rapid environmental change. And at the same time, I was also looking at how, you know, people, especially uh, my interlocutors who were in the anti-resettlement group, were engaging very strategically and very creatively with a whole range of different international or, or national rights movements, you know, activists, advocates in very different ways in order to draw attention to their cause and try and, you know, kind of build support for the anti-resettlement legal case. And so that that sort of combination of experiences of environmental change and engagement with um, international movements and politics started, got me started thinking about what was going on elsewhere in Borneo. And, you know, At that point, I started thinking more about how these questions could be applied to another major industry um, across the island of Borneo, but also Sumatra, which is orangutan conservation. So a very, very well-known, very charismatic and and prominent inhabitant of the island. So at that point, um, I decided to try and shift my attention a little bit to to understanding the social, political, cultural, and also aesthetic dimensions of orangutan conservation, and especially the sorts of ground-level complications and tensions that conservation programs could generate, um, you know, by looking at the interactions between conservationists and indigenous villages and orangutans. Now, I should say that this, uh, this research has been very different to my previous research in the sense that it's all been done collectively as part of two research projects, uh, one called Bokok and the other one called The Global Lives of the Orangutans, which involved me working with a, a small team of postdocs and PhD students on creating this multi-sited ethnography of 
this global network of orangutan conservation. And I think this was really important for a couple of reasons. One was a very pragmatic reason, which was I, when I started doing this research, I was not in a position to actually do long-term fieldwork in Borneo. I, I'd ha- I had two small children at the time, and it was just impossible for me to do you know, what I'd done for my PhD and my postdoctoral research. And so I thought it'd be much more useful for me to be able to work with a team of people who could, in fact, do that sort of work, but then sort of keep, you know, keep that conversation going as a team. Uh, and the second reason was simply that, you know, this... Conservation is a huge, sprawling, incredibly complicated and problematic global field. And it's exactly the sort of thing that you can't study in one place, which is what anthropologists have conventionally done. So what what these two projects tried to do was actually pull together ethnographic research and fieldwork and perspectives from quite specific nodes of orangutan conservation across the world, including the UK, kind of international scientific and and artistic imaginaries, which was what I was working on, and then very specific rural areas where conservation programs were unfolding and very often causing these complicated interactions between humans and apes and conservationists. Uh, So, We've just tied up uh, both of those projects. It's been a really, really exciting and very rewarding experience working with uh, my colleagues. And I just want to say that, you know, anything else I say at this point is, is, is reflective, not simply of my own research, but also of our collective discussions and the way we've been thinking and writing together as a team for the last several years. Um, so I, I think essentially what what we're interested in is trying to understand how ideas and people and finances and all sorts of other things move from one place to another across the globe, right, in, in orangutan conservation. And the effects that these movements generate in different sites on the ground, and also the way that these, these movements may or may not enable orangutan conservation to hang together. So we're as interested in the sorts of gaps and slippages and and points of conflict in orangutan conservation as we were in the way that things actually connected and held together and and kind of moved um, from one context to another. So yeah, that's that's basically where we got to. I can't remember what the question was. (laughs) The the question was basically just how the one led to the other, so. (laughs) Yes. I've gone way past that. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. So can you talk a little bit more about like your specific role and like what that look, Mm -hmm. what what that has looked like on more of a, I guess, day-to-day basis? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of my work has been in kind of leading these two research projects. So, you know, making sure we're doing, we're reading together, we're thinking together. I I usually take the lead on co-authored pieces. You know, there's, there's quite a strong sense of responsibility for all the research that's being carried out as part of these two projects. Uh, My specific research ended up focusing on the digital manifestations of orangutan conservation. So I started out by looking at the social media scape of orangutan conservation um, as this really strange sort of, you know, dispersed space in which people who shared a common interest in, in saving these apes from extinction came together and the kinds of politics and I guess modes of intervention that arose as a result of those of those interactions. So, in in one of my articles, I wrote about how, um, you know, very often orangutan conservation organisations try to raise funds and awareness for their causes by using what I call a logic of small acts. So, it's this idea that you know, even though you're somewhere in the West and you don't have the expertise or the time or the money to actually be physically there in the field in the forests saving orangutans, um, as people like to see it, you can still contribute in lots of small ways. And cumulatively, those small acts can make a genuine difference on the ground. So that's the kind of logic through which many conservation organizations uh, raise their funds and, and get people um, invested in their causes. Another thing I did was, was, was look at how different visualizations of orangutans, but also orang- orangutan extinction, biodiversity loss, you know, all, that, all, all these related questions were being produced by both science and popular media. So, you know, extinction is a very, very difficult thing to, to visualize, to pin down in concrete terms. So one of my questions was, how do you visualize the extinction of the orangutan, right? How do these things come to take visual shape and, and visual form? And, and what kinds of politics do these give rise to? So I was kind of looking a lot at, at how these, you know, these discourses and these narratives and these visual imaginaries that 
shape orangutan conservation that gets sent out across um, across the world to places like Borneo and Sumatra, where orangutans actually exist, are being created. What they actually do, what effects they have um, as they move across this global network of orangutan conservation. Um, and I was also drawing partly on my earlier research, you know, up, up in the hills with Bidoi communities, where orangutans are not you know, they're not really seen very much. They're not very much a feature of everyday life, but people are sort of vaguely aware of them because they occasionally do pop up and, and so do conservationists. <laughs> but that's a slightly different story. So I was trying to pull all these different insights together, uh, you know, to try and understand what's going on at the source of these conservation narratives and organizations. And then I had um, a number of different people working on different nodes of orangutan conservation that we then you know, that, that we could then sort of pull together. It was like it was like assembling the pieces of a jigsaw, right? To try and pull up pull together this bigger picture of, of how this network operated. So I was here um, looking at these visualizations and ideas as they moved around the world and digital spaces. One of the postdocs on my team was working with uh, with UK-based orangutan adoption schemes. So it's these schemes that UK-based charities run to try and um, get money and you know get support for orangutans that are being rehabilitated over in Borneo and Sumatra. And then I had two PhD students, uh, both of whom were working at very specific conservation sites, but in, you know, very, very, very much looking at the interactions between ordinary people and conservationists. And then another postdoc who was in rural central Kalimantan looking at a new community conservation scheme in an area where there are lots of wild orangutans that had been set up by this um, uh, Western conservation research group. Uh, and so we were all kind of, you know, we we're all doing fieldwork and research at the same time. And we we're all talking to each other constantly and trying to pull together, you know, our, our insights and findings and descriptions from these different bits of orangutan conservation to try and build up this slightly fractured and slightly weird picture of how this one conservation nexus operates. And, and it was absolutely fascinating stuff. So yes, that's, that's, that's what I did, but it was very much in relation to other bits of that, of, of those two research projects. Okay. So first of all, when you said that, when you were talking about orangutans not being, or, you know, popping up every now and then, and then conservations popping up, I just had this image of like the stereotypical conservationist with like their Indiana Jones outfit, like just <laughs> popping out of nowhere. <laughs> so... <laughs> But before we get too far from uh, your methods, I'm just curious, you know, your experience as, you know, you're, you're from Southeast Asia, but not the communities mm -hmm. that have orang orangutans um, or that you've worked with. But then you're also working, you know, you're also looking at this project at, at communities in the UK, you know, where you're mm -hmm. living and across the world, you know, as a as a social anthropologist, what was that like for you looking at, you know, like obviously you're connected in some ways mm. to all these different communities and also, you know, did it, did it affect the way you related to, you know, the people you were studying in the UK versus like, you know, in Borneo, for example, just if you had any reflections on, on that experience. Yeah. It's, it's a really tricky question because, you know, I, I think in many ways that this experience has it's 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 really blurred the the binaries, you know, the the divisions that tend to dominate contemporary and you know, popular understandings of anthropology, right? Because you know, historically, there's there's very much this this stereotype of anthropology, which in some ways gets reproduced in you know doctoral training programs in universities all over the global north as as the science of you know white Western individuals going out to study non-Western radically different cultural others. Uh, and that, you know, obviously anthropology's changed a lot since since those days. But I think that image is is very much alive and well. And it, it still it still gets baked into um, you know, the way we teach our students about field work, you know, participant observation, dealing with otherness, taking seriously, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and it also, you know, it very often infuses our theory because a lot of our sorts of conceptual insights come from the revelations that you're expected to get when you're confronted with radical otherness, you know, radical cultural difference. And so, you know, I think I've always been very aware of this because as a sort of, you know, as, as a Singaporean, Southeast Asian anthropologist working in the UK for a long time, but with Indigenous groups in Borneo, I've been very aware that I, I don't quite fit that that sort of white Western anthropologist mold. And, and this was absolutely clear to me, even when I was doing my PhD, you know, I was, I was definitely not, I, I didn't necessarily feel, feel like I, I fitted very well into that 
stereotype, which which in a way we were all being encouraged to live up to um, in our PhD training program. Um, and so I think it became a little bit more obvious to me when I was doing this research, you know, on orangutan conservation, because in some ways it felt sometimes like when I was talking to people at events, you know, in the UK, at demonstrations, at charity events, I sometimes felt a little bit uncomfortable in the sense that it almost felt as if they were looking at me as if I was one of those one of those Southeast Asians, very generic Southeast Asians, right? One of those people mm-hmm. who lives, you know, over in Southeast Asia, not quite alongside orangutans, but in the same countries, in the same regions. And I think, you know, in people's minds, you know, if you sort of mention that, I'm, I'm pretty sure they'd say, no, 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 you're obviously different because you're Singaporean and, and they're, you know, indigenous people in Borneo or Sumatra or whatever. I often sort of felt like there was, that there was an attempt to sort of, there was an assumption of complicity which made me feel quite weird in the sense that there was, it was assumed that I was, you know, that, that because I was over here and I spoke good English and I was an anthropologist, that I would therefore be complicit with this slightly, uh, not slightly, I mean, very often, you know, completely colonial um, view of what was going on in, in Borneo and Sumatra, where, you know, there were these ignorant, uneducated, you know, cruel natives who did not understand the value of orangutans and were not good environmental subjects, just kind of, you know, just shooting them at will and being really horrible to them. And either that or just not understanding why they were important, right? So we've got to educate these poor people. Um, and there was a little bit of a sense that, you know, I was being pulled into that that sort of that space that there was an there was an assumption that I sort of belonged in that space, but at the same time, people were a little bit sort of wary of me, just in case you know I I, I didn't necessarily share the same values as they did. So I remember having this slightly weird conversation where you know we were talking. I was talking. I can't remember who it was, but I was talking to somebody at some random um, event about how. You know, some people in Borneo still hunt and consume orangutans because why not? You know, they're just any other mm-hmm. game that you might encounter in the forest. And and there was, and and this guy was like, yeah, yeah, you know, um, yeah, you know, these people, these people will just eat anything, won't they? You just, you know, you just, you just never know mm. what sort of diet they have. And then he sort of paused and sort of looked at me, and you know, I I could, I could sort of almost imagining him thinking, oh. Is she Chinese? Chinese eat everything, don't they? Oh, Ooh, you know, am I saying the right thing here? And, and so there was always this really uneasy, you know, I wasn't quite sure. And they were never quite sure whether I was fully complicit and fully with them or whether I was part of that other who they were trying very hard to be sympathetic towards and understand. Right. Um, so it was, it was a really weird one. You know, there was no overt hostility, but there was very much this sense of, oh, do I or do I not get enrolled into these very sort of colonial assumptions about what's going on on the ground in places like Borneo? Hmm. Yeah. So did that experience like make you think at all about like or think in different ways about, you know, how you might have been perceived by the communities in Borneo? Just curious, like. No, I, I don't think so because I was, I mean, certainly for the for the Bidayu communities that I've worked with for a long time, I've been I, I've always known how they perceive me. Yeah, okay. um, you know, they they've always perceived me as, or I mean, certainly, especially when I was younger, you know, they they always called me Tina, you know, which just means oi, you know, Chinese person, right? That Chinese girl. Uh, because I was from Singapore, by definition, most people in Singapore are Chinese and most people in Singapore are rich. So um, there was always a little bit of that going on anyway. And you know, sometimes I'd get kind of, you know, requests like, oh, could you buy me some, you know, buy me a nice present? Or oh, could, could you help me find, you know, my cousin a job in, in this or that Chinese shop in, in the town? And obviously, I couldn't because, you know, I, I, I basically couldn't. But there were these stereotypes that they had as well. So, you know, I, I think they were very clear that I was not a white Western anthropologist. I was a girl from Singapore who was, you know, doing big schooling, as they said, in the UK. But they they didn't relate to me necessarily as a white person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's, I think I've always been aware of that. As to how I might be perceived by, you know, some of the Indigenous communities that maybe my, my postdocs and PhDs worked with, that's a really interesting question. And I think that that would depend on the context in which I was introduced to them. So if I came in, for example, you know, under the auspices of a, of a conservation organization, I might either be seen as, I mean, they, they know I was, they call me Chinese anyway, but I think they'd sort of basically link me with either, 
you know, these middle class urbanites from Jakarta or, you know, the cities or with white people. And, and that would be a slightly different proposition because they're often quite suspicious of uh, conservation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about what, you know, so we talked about methods, mm-hmm. but what did, what did you actually find when you were doing this research? We found some very interesting things. Maybe they're not entirely surprising, but they were still very interesting. So I think maybe the first thing to say is that it became very, very clear to us very early on. And, and I think I already knew this anyway from my previous fieldwork, um, that this kind of international, you know, mostly Western global North fascination with orangutans as this charismatic, unique, endangered species isn't necessarily shared um, in the forests where orangutans actually live. And so a lot of our time was spent actually trying to understand what people thought about orangutans, um, you know, in in these spaces. And generally, I think we can say that most most indigenous communities in Borneo don't see orangutans as particularly interesting or special or exceptional. Um, You know, they're very much part of this wider multi-species environment. So in an environment in, in which there are lots of living beings, including trees, rivers, animals, humans, spirits, that are bound by certain relations and certain ties of, you know, accountability and reciprocity. So there's certain moral codes um, that you expect to find across all living beings in a lot of these environments. And so, you know, I mean, most of the time, if you're an indigenous person and you encounter an orangutan in the jungle, you'd be like, nah, whatever, you know, no big deal, nothing interesting. Sometimes you might hunt it and kill it uh, and eat it. But, you know, you wouldn't necessarily see it as particularly special or particularly interesting or different to any other primate that you might encounter. And so I think one of the big problems and one of the big sources of tension that we found in our research is that what conservation does is it disrupts this this moral and social fabric because with the backing of the state and, and with laws and stuff, it comes in and it plucks this one animal that nobody necessarily sees as special or exceptional out from this multi-species fabric, this wider environment, and makes it special. It makes it super visible, you know, um, super protected, and therefore no longer bound by the same sorts of relations and conventions that govern life in these environments. Um, it, it's conservation that sort of makes the orangutan exceptional. And and this very often comes, you know, people feel at the expense of indigenous land rights, uh, their access to their customary land, um, to their livelihoods, because what you tend to find um, in these spaces is that, you know, conservation programs will come in and in the name of saving orangutans will demarcate certain areas that they see as theirs, you know, their customary lands as protected forests in order to save orangutans. Uh, and this means restrictions on livelihoods. So you can't, you know, stopping people um, doing swidden cultivation because, you know, there's a lot of burning going on and stopping people logging trees in their own forests, restricting people's access to their customary lands and so on. So the problem here is that, you know, conservation doesn't only kind of pluck orangutans out of this wider moral fabric. It also does so at the expense of indigenous people's well-being and rights and access to land. And, and that causes tremendous problems uh, in these spaces and a lot of resentment about what exactly it is conservationists are doing in these spaces. So, you know, another interesting thing that we found is that for many of our indigenous interlocutors, um, you know, conservationists are very often not seen as any different to other external players, you know, like companies or the state or tourists or whatever. You know, they're all seen as these quite powerful and well-resourced outsiders that have some sort of vested interest in indigenous people's lands just for different reasons. So, you know, companies might want to extract stuff from it and conservationists might want to protect it. But in both cases, local communities, you know, just uh, end up losing out. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's not very cheerful, but there you go. That's, um, that's the reality on the ground at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on that cheerful note, we're, we're right at the end. Um, was there any last, you know, little things that you wanted to share, make sure that our, our listeners understood before we go? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I, I don't want to end on too depressing a note. So, you know what I, th- well, I think it's really important to be aware of, of the many historical and contemporary problems that conservation has caused. You know, I, I think I think there are also 
various organizations and individuals who are working very hard to make conservation better um, and to improve their engagement with local communities, you know, make sure that what they're doing doesn't only benefit a particular species, but but can also work to benefit humans and their environments. It's it's a very, very difficult balancing act, but you know, there are there are openings and there are possibilities. And there are people who are really trying to make that change on the ground, many of whom are kind of from, you know, from the region, from Borneo and Sumatra themselves, and who have a very different kind of vested interest in, in what goes on in these spaces. And so I think what we're seeing emerging at this point is, you know, kind of new ways of doing conservation that are relatively unusual, but that I hope will uh, kind of create more room for, you know, the coexistence of different values, different methods and yeah different different ways of relating to both humans and non-humans all right well thank you so much for for coming on and and sharing really appreciate you taking the time especially since you're in the uk so it's much later <laughs> where you are right now yeah, it's getting dark now <laughs> <laughs> but yeah thank you thank you very much Thanks for listening to the Heritage Voices podcast. You can find show notes at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash heritagevoices. Please subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Music Store. Also, please share with your friends or write us a review. Sharing and reviewing helps more people find the show and gets the perspectives of Heritage Voices' amazing guests out there into the world. Don't we just need more of that in anthropology and land management? If you have any more questions, comments, or show suggestions, please reach out to me at Jessica at at livingheritageanthropology.org. If you'd like to volunteer to be on the show as a guest or even a co-host, reach out to me as well, Jessica at livingheritageanthropology.org. You can also follow more of what I'm doing on Facebook at Living Heritage Anthropology and the nonprofit Living Heritage Research Council or on Twitter at Living Heritage A. As always, huge thank you to Lyle Belenqua and Jason Nez for their collaboration on our incredible logo. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.